Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal. Real, honest, and meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. Andrea Schneider is an academic driven negotiator and the head of the Institute for Women's Leadership at Marquette University. She has dedicated her life to making the ADR fields more attractive, approachable, and inclusive. We got together to discuss Andrea's work with IWL and advancing women's leadership on a local and global level. How are you guys? Good, how are you? So, you know, not surprising because we're talking today and I've been reading about you and everything you've done. And I think what drives home for me, which is one of my biggest frustrations in the world these days, is that, you know, you're insanely educated. You've done amazing things and bringing important issues to the forefront and worked with companies and worked in STEM and worked in major clients and, you know, done things at Marquette and nobody knows your name. And this is one of my biggest frustrations because I bet if you were Andy, (laughs) a lot of more people would know about all the incredible work you've done. And, um, you know, Alice and I are working on changing that in the world because I personally have had enough. Well, and it's funny because I think I think there are two things. I mean, one is definitely the male, uh, you know, male versus female, and there's a ton of studies out there on you know submitting articles with initials versus a female name or a male name. Right? If I made it Andy with a Y versus Andy with an I, which is absolutely what my family calls me. Right? And, and thinking about that, and I also think it's a Midwest bias. I'm not on a coast. Oh no, no, we have it on the coast. But you have it on the coast, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you have it anyway. But I also think that there's some of the, sometimes things get lost when it's happening kind of in the middle of the country. I've seen that over the course of my career as well. But on the other hand, there's a lot more ability, I think, to balance when your commute is 15 minutes versus an hour and a half. That matters in terms of being able to do the writing and do the teaching and do all the programming and, uh, you know, and get home and, uh, and have a life and things like that. Yeah, but thank you. Thank you. It's, I mean, it's hard. Listen, you are, you know, you've done academic, you've researched, you've, you know, you're a driven negotiator. Did you always want to go into law? Is that something that's part of your, your DNA or is there, is there law in your family? There is. It's funny, as you say, DNA. My grandfather was a lawyer. And so I don't know that it really occurred to me before... College. I was a math and science baby, actually, all the way through middle school and high school. And in retrospect, I realized, you know, one wonders either with different family, you know, I didn't have any scientists, I had a doctor, but not any scientists or engineers, or, you know, different kind of coaching, maybe in high school, I would have stayed the path. But in college, 
I showed up at college and loved history and politics and all of those courses. And one summer went to work for my grandfather in New York. I spent every summer, my grandparents are New Yorkers, as actually both of my parents are. So I uh, was in New York for the summer and uh, working for my grandfather and found it far more interesting to talk to him about his work and to read even, I, I remember reading like a real estate book, right? Boring beyond boring now, right? With like real estate regulations and all sorts of craziness. But my alternative was Anna Karenina, terrific book. And I'm like, yeah, Anna Karenina, a real estate book. And I found them both really interesting as I was sitting there and I'm like, hmm, maybe the universe is telling you something here about a, a potential job. And I really liked the flexibility that he had. And he was on Long Island in a, a you know nice village and everybody knew him and it seemed like a really nice life. Well, you know, I don't think of lawyers as flexible because, you know, you are client beholden. I mean, I remember many friends who were lawyers early on after graduating law school that missed weddings, this missed events, and um, absolutely none of them are in law anymore. <laughs> and I think for the people who figure out the flexibility part of it and protecting their life, they stay in it. And so we look at the law as... Um, only the career, you know, the kind of the public path, the big law path, uh, where we see people at the biggest firms in the biggest cities, not recognizing that actually the vast majority of lawyers, that's not their life. They're right. in, right, small and medium-sized firms in small and medium-sized towns across the country and actually have the ability to manage their life. And I was very lucky because that's what I saw from my grandfather. And I did big law. You need to do that. You need to see that. Um, sure. But that wasn't the reason I got into it. What kind of law did he practice? Real estate law? Everything, right? He was the village attorney. So he had his own practice. Like the village doctor. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Everyone needs one of each. Exactly. I like right. that. So what is like, you know, negotiations is a big topic for you. And I, you know, tell you a quick story is I had this young woman work for me in the mid nineties. She worked for me and she was a salesperson. And it was her first job, you know, she was hungry. But I remember right before we went into our first meeting together, I turned to her and I said, shake my hand. And she's like, what? I said, shake my hand. And it was not a good handshake. And I said, we're gonna sit here until you shake my hand and look me in the eye because that's what you need to do when you walk into a room. And if I've taught you anything, you'll remember that from me 20 years from now. And, you know, it is similar to a negotiation, right? Because you feel empowered just saying, hello, I am here. So when was your first negotiation that you sort of had any of these aha moments? So it's funny because my, my mom, of course, would tell you all sorts of childhood stories that looking back, oh, sure. she knows. She's like, oh, God. You know, as a toddler, you were a pain. As a teenager, you were, right? Like you were negotiating your whole life. You know, for me, it's funny because I'm realizing, I think interactions that we think about over time, even in college, I wasn't thinking about it as negotiation. I was thinking about it as getting what I wanted. So, you know, my- Yeah, right, like, 100%, yeah. <laughs> like, don't give me a name for it. And I mean, I remember I, I put together funding to go uh, do some research in Paris. And you know that that's a really good goal, right? Money to go study in Paris. And I went from place to place to place, right? The history department 
and this particular program, and can I get money from the French department, and you know, $500 here, and $300 there, and $200 there, and what about this alumni group, and just to put together a package to fund me to do my thesis research there, and of course that's negotiation, of course that's how do you get what you want, how do you ask for what you need, and put it together and persuade people that it's worth investing in you to send you there, and I never, of course, thought about that as negotiation, right, I just as I said, like, how do I get to Paris and who needs to fund me in order to do that? So it wasn't really until law school, I took negotiation my first year of law school and it was like bells and whistles went off. Like all of a sudden it all made sense. The things that I really loved to talk about, which were, you know, policy arguments back and forth. And that's actually a negotiation, right? That was international diplomatic negotiations. For sure or the stuff that I thought I was good at. I was business manager of our newspaper and you know what made me good at it, right? The handshake and the looking somebody in the eye and being able to sell advertising and write all of those things. Well, that's negotiating, right? I did fundraising. What is that? It's negotiating with people to yes. part with their money and support your cause. And so that really gave me this framework for all of these activities that I loved, that I saw, and then I could understand a little bit more what worked, right? Why is a handshake important? Why does eye contact matter, right? So that that was when it finally clicked. It makes total sense. I mean, so you're really, your understanding of how people deal with, you know, these difficult issues, sort of like, ah, <laughs> but what was it when you really realized how different women negotiate than men? And I mean, I certainly spent a lot of time being blown away by men that will come into my office and actually pretend they know everything they're talking about when they know nothing. And I find it comical, particularly when I know what they're saying is wrong. But women don't do that. Women will say, you know, I don't really know. Right. And, and it's funny, I mean, just on this confidence factor alone, we see huge gender differences. Overconfidence is a significant problem in negotiation in that people will bluff, they'll make threats, they'll assume that there's, you know, that things are gonna work out, right? And we teach it as a negotiation error. But the fact of the matter is it is an error for men. Women are more likely not to engage in that, consult before deciding to get experts in the room to admit when they don't know it, which makes them really good, for example, at. I don't know, leading a country and consulting with scientists before they implement policy, those kinds of things. Absolutely, which makes them really great entrepreneurs because they cross their T's and dot their I's, but that is also a problem that they cross their T's and dot their I's. Exactly, and the same thing can then get you stuck because we also see that you know men will apply for jobs when they fit one of the 10 criteria and women will wait until they fit all of them and say, well, you know, I fit seven out of 10, but they're really looking for somebody that has all of these and I haven't mastered, you know, fill in the blank. And men won't wait for that. They'll say, oh, I'll learn on the job. I'll figure it out. And so that difference, right, it's, it's problematic at both extremes. To go back to the question of when did I realize or really start thinking about gender differences, I'd say there are two points. One was in this negotiation class, we were about you know two thirds through the semester, we'd been learning things like overconfidence can get you into trouble and all <laughs> of those kinds of things. And then we had what I think was basically gender day or something insane like that, where it was like, and now a message from our sponsors, right? Like here's how women negotiate. And of course this was the early nineties. The video that we saw was then probably from the late eighties 
you know, and it was like women in a giant, oh, I can only imagine. and it, it was like, you know, here's how women do this. And it was this whole like getting along and, and women tend to be more cooperative. And that didn't apply to anything that I saw. And part of this is recognizing not only how important our general socialization is for our behavior, but our family socialization. And in my family, I'd been raised with story after story of very strong women who looked at rules and said, well, those are stupid and I'm not following them. <laughs> so the idea, I, I mean, there was a great grandmother who came over on, on the boat and then brought everybody else over, a great, great aunt who was a doctor in the Russian revolution and then kind of schemed with my grandmother so that she could lie when she got pregnant. You know, back in the day, you'd get fired the moment you were pregnant. Oh, so yeah. she had her pregnancies, you know. And I just, had a friend at Goldman Sachs when she got pregnant in the early 80s, the guy she worked with basically shut the door and said, are you a freaking idiot? You should go get an abortion. This is absurd. I mean, like, oh my God. Like when oh I things from the past in the 80s, because I remember getting to work in the 80s and thinking, what the fuck? This is how it works. You know, and I, literally when I watch things of that era, like it gives me like PTSD. <laughs> it's, it is mind blowing. I, I know to my students, I mean, even in the late 90s, I didn't have maternity leave. And, and to my law students now, they're like, what do you mean? I said, you know, I, I had a course reduction and then I made it up. I taught an extra course the next semester. Right. Like they're like, that's not normal. I'm like, oh, you guys think that it's all been fixed. And this is not ancient history to most of to most women who are, you know, above a certain age. Right. We've. I mean, I look and I was one of these women in the early 90s. I thought um, I mean, I, I, I'm now teaching a seminar in gender equity. And as I've told them, I never took a woman's studies class. I never took a gender studies class. I didn't take one in college. I didn't take one in law school. I got to higher education and said, well, this is done, right? I mean, I'm equal, I'm here. Why do I need a class in this? Like that battle is over. And, and I 100% agree with you. So and you are similar to many women I know at this age, like myself, who I think at one point, sort of like when we graduated, we were like, okay, we can be in the workforce. And right. thought that, we had broken through this glass ceiling when in actuality, I think a lot of us put feminism on a back burner. Right. And really didn't think about it for years to come. And a lot of us are now sort of waking up again and saying, all right. Oh. Oh, right. And, and, and recognizing that. So, you know, when I had this class and I was looking at gender and negotiation in, in the early 90s, I'm like, this is crazy and it doesn't apply. And nobody in my family is, you know, as, as I joke, as I regularly say, even now, I said, you know, there's no male in my family, no son, no husband, no father, no brother that has looked around at the women in my family and said, wow, what they really need is to be more assertive. <laughs> no, not a thing in our family dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, once I started teaching, I mean, that was the other aha moment. So by the late 90s, as I was teaching negotiation and seeing and, and seeing classes, right, 50-50 men and women, then I was really exposed to the fact that there were 
more women coming in who were not feeling confident, who didn't ask and assert for themselves, who did have that kind of socialization where negotiation had to be something that was hidden or handled carefully. And that too was eye-opening, right? That even if it didn't apply to me, it did apply to a lot of people and to really think about what are the skills to make sure that everybody is able to competently and confidently negotiate on their own behalf. So you're the first director of the Marquette Institute for Women's Leadership. Talk a little bit how you created this, you know, and how you were given this opportunity. Because as you're talking about women in negotiations, and one of the things I continue to wonder about is what happens and when does that happen that there is this differential between men and women? Not that we don't have in our own personal DNA, but something goes on in education in this country, because women that I know that are from other countries don't have a lot of the issues that we have here. Right. I'm going to blame seventh grade. No, I mean, I think, you know, what we know in the States is that confidence, you know, confidence for both boys and girls is pretty similar. And that's somewhere in the tween to teenage years that kind of goes pitching off the deep end. I mean, not for everybody, but for a chunk of women. And again, it happens to boys too, right? It's just a question that it seems to happen to more girls who then become women, that if you track confidence levels over time, it doesn't start going back up until the 20s, right? So we're not talking about women in their 30s and 40s and 50s who can't negotiate on their own behalf. They do, they have, they've got this, right? Anybody who's successful at business has figured out how to talk, right? That's not a thing. But what we have is in some ways the legacy of this socialization or this damage or whatever it is that has happened in that you're trying to catch up. So you're not negotiating for your first salary. And as I point out, I didn't negotiate for my first salary. I literally got hired to teach negotiation and didn't counter offer on the money. I mean, I countered on all sorts of other things and I got summer funding for this and I worked on my teaching load and, um, and I had just given birth. I showed up, you know, I gave birth in June and started teaching in August and, you know, kind of insane stuff. So I was figuring out all of that. Um, and right, my first raise was when a guy got hired the next year and my dean said, well, we're going to give you, you're going to get a raise too, because I'm not paying someone who was hired after you more than you. What a right? Delight. So I, right. I had someone who believed in structural fairness and we, we have tended to look at pay equity as an individual problem of women not negotiating or not starting out as high salaries and not recognizing that this is a structural problem and the people who are responsible are the ones who get to look at all of the salaries and say, oh, well, wow, there's a pattern there. And we don't want to be running an institution, organization, university, whatever it is, in which there's unequal salaries, mm -hmm. right? That pay, pay inequity is continued. And so that's what's happening in, I think, your 30s and 40s is in some ways trying to make up for either not negotiating early on or for the fact that you did step back and now you're coming back into the workforce or whatever it is and recognizing that 
yes, there are individual things you need to be thinking about in terms of building your confidence and knowing your case and being able to negotiate and having criteria, but there's also systemic factors that we can fix and should fix at a systemic level, making sure that people don't ask about your salary history, right? There are states and, and now cities that ban companies from asking, well, what did you make before? Because they understand that that legacy it's is problematic, right? And it's both for, I mean, the studies have shown when you ban salary history, it raises women's and minority salaries. And that's exactly who we should be targeting. Right. You know, it, I, I remember, I mean, I always negotiated. I think of negotiations for your salary or a job. It's like when you buy a house, if you don't get the right price, you got to always be able to walk away. Right. I had a friend that got the, her ultimate job out of graduate school working for a big sports organization. And she told me when she went in for the interview, she was so overwhelmed and excited. She said, I want this job so badly, I would take it for free. Right. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like, why would they ever pay you what you're worth? Like, you literally just opened the door to being dismissed, not only on your salary, but everything that you do, because you did not come in from a position of strength. Right, well, and again, advice then of thinking, get the job, first get the job, and then, right? I mean, part again, another systemic fix is to think about the network. So now with the internet, right, whether it's Glassdoor or other places, there's far more pay transparency, but, Men have had those networks where somebody's telling you when you come in, hey, negotiate for that, or by the way, here's the operating salary or whatever it is. We need to do our research. We need to do our homework. And there's no substitute for not, you know, for finding out what everybody else is making. And so again, we now know that greater pay transparency leads to more negotiations and women being better paid for it. So again, that's one of those systemic fixes. And look, that's what an institute can help with, of, of kind of raising awareness. These are the things that, that can fix it. And these are the things that we need to band together to, frankly, demand systemic change. So what are some of the classes that you're teaching over there? So the institute is set up on, I would say, like three different legs, right? One is that we're looking at pioneering research and how can we, we're housed in the Office of Research and Innovation. This is really first and foremost as a university, what do we know and what can we learn and what can we prove by virtue of it? And so even, I just came out with a report on law firm equity in Milwaukee, right? Because again, transparency is step one. We don't know what the issues are. We can't talk about them. We can't push for change. And so really, getting that research done and creating a network of researchers. We've done that now across campus. There are 80 people across campus that are doing work on gender one way or another. And what I hope post-COVID is to really create a city network. Uh, there are plenty of wonderful universities in the neighborhood. And how can we work together again to kind of first and foremost, what do we need to know? The second part of that, obviously, is then programming based on that. And that's in both ways, right? What's the individual all right, let's train women to negotiate. But then what are the systemic things that we can think about? How are we hiring? How do we recruit people? What are best practices in retention, in creating climates of inclusivity, which is 
look. Every company is trying to figure that out right now. Every company. I mean, every company is trying to figure out more diversity, more understanding of family issues, more understanding, particularly for women, you know, and they should have woken up to that a long, long, long time ago. I mean, you know, even looking at JP Morgan Chase that came out that they're going to set this much money aside for black founders in the real estate world to make and feel that they have access to this capital that they've never had access to. And then there's part of me that's like, okay, you guys are the ones that screwed all these people for years. And now all of a sudden you get to make amends. And so it is a very strange time that we just sort of move on. And no one has said, well, why did you guys give all those people those horrific mortgages so they could never pay them back? But you didn't do that for white people. Can we talk about that before you set aside $30 billion? Right. And I, I think it's the same thing of the, you know, when you hear companies saying, oh, like one of the things we've been running the a pay equity speaker series this spring, again, to raise awareness on, you know, what does a paycheck audit look like? How do you conduct this? What are best practices, banning salary history, pay transparency, right? And you hear companies saying, well, we can't afford that. And they just leave it there as opposed to what you're saying is that you can't afford to pay women fairly so that you're going to continue to make profits from the fact that you're underpaying a percentage of your employees based on gender. A hundred percent. What? What do you mean you can't afford it? Yes, there's going to be less profit when you pay your employees fairly. Okay. And by the way, that's short term. Exactly. Because those people will stay. Exactly. They'll stay, they'll make more money, and the firm will do better. And all of these fixes are short term. I mean, even what's going on with government now, all the money they're going to put into, you know, our stratosphere with changing things of our foundation that have been literally allowed to rot since the Reagan years. And will we have inflation? Probably at some level. Will it be rampant forever? No, because at one point we will jump the chasm and all these people will have jobs and they'll put their money back into the economy and we'll actually have roads without holes and you know a variety of different things bridges that you know won't fall down exactly and wi-fi in areas that are completely underserved which should have happened years ago but those companies are so greedy and i love how they you know put out a pr thing is that you know no we're gonna do it it's just like why didn't you do it before right and it's the same thing as what they do to women yeah no i agree i agree and i think you know, so really trying, you know, where we hope to be a little different is coming up with suggestions that, you know, here's the research, here's what we can show has worked. And right, and the last piece of that is really that collaborative engagement with the city, with the state, you know, even in the speaker series, look, it's not just us at the university saying like, ooh, university, there, there's plenty of women's organizations that have been operating for a very long time. We are the ones who are new to the game not them. I don't want to be telling anybody, here's the answer magically based on, you know, my one and a half years as director. I mean, that's ridiculous. And so really bringing everybody into the fold, because again, that collaborative model, that's, that is the best part of what a more, a different kind of leadership can look like. Shared practices. So you did your postgraduate in Naples. And does the style of negotiation for women differ 
over there? Is there more, um, are women more, do they acquiesce to more men or do they, there has to be differential. I mean, I work with a woman for years that grew up in Lebanon and she was like, what's with this woman thing over here? You know, I mean, cause that's how she grew up. There was no, you know, women, men. It was like, she just expected to do anything that she could possibly do that was who she was. And so I'm just curious, was that sort of like, oh, wow, it's very different over here. In Italy, I think that's, you know, one of the things that I've loved living and, and doing some work overseas, whether it's been Paris, right, whether it was France, whether it was Italy and elsewhere, you know, from when you're out of the United States, you get to shine a light back on the United States. Um, and it gives you a little bit of perspective of like, wow, so these set of assumptions that I, you know, the water that we're swimming in that we don't even realize, right? When you get out of it, you kind of have the ability to look back and say, oh, that's a different set of assumptions. And well, that's really interesting. And I wouldn't say necessarily that other societies I mean, one could look at Scandinavia as kind of a really trying to go very far in terms of gender equality. There's plenty of sexism going on in France and Italy, Mediterranean countries. Yeah, everywhere. I actually think there's a lot, again, this goes toward recognizing where does your set of assumptions come from and how does that impact your negotiation behavior, right? So when I talk about like, if you and I were negotiating, right, and I said something or did something, you might look at me and say, oh, she's saying that because she's a woman, or she's saying that because she's white, or because you know I'm a professor, well, oh, that's so wonky, like, you know, what, you know, such intellectual gobbledygook, like, I can't believe that, right? But there's a lot of other things going on, right? Am I saying that because I'm the firstborn? Am I saying it because I, I have New Yorker parents and, you know, you talk fast and get a move on and, and let's go. Um, is it because I was professionally trained as a lawyer, which means advocate, advocate, advocate. Is it because, uh, you know, I'm the mom of boys and I, you know, I duck and cover and right? And, and they are mean little things, teenage boys, right? And, and other w- in ways differently than teenage girls, right? Absolutely. So is there, right, we don't know when we see somebody kind of where their behavior is coming from. And so we tend to make assumptions based on what we can see because we're not sitting down usually and asking like, oh, so tell me about your, you know, birth order and whether your parents argued in front of you or pretended that everything was fine. And did you at the dinner table, like talk over each other constantly or not? And I think that's really the interesting thing, right? So your friend, I mean, it's because she's from Lebanon, maybe, right? And, you know, when you say Lebanon, I'm like, oh, Lebanese Christian, Lebanese Muslim. I'm going to go with that is very interesting in terms of growing up and what those assumptions might play at. You know, when did she move to the States and what's her professional training? And, right, all of those things are going to have an impact on how she communicates. But what I'm going to see is female. And... Yes. Right. There's so much more to us. Right. There's so much more to us. I mean, I was said to someone the other day and said, well, you know, I'm 60 now. I'm not still 15. I was like, no, but you're always 15. You know, because all of that carries with you in how you look, see, and, you know, walk through the world. Of course, you can go back and, and, and think about it and understand why, but you know, it impacts who you are. It's like the dots connecting in your career, the dots connect in 
who you are as a person and the experience you had in your own life. Right. I mean, there's some great research that like your music tastes are imprinted at like age 13 which is petrifying when you think about what you were listening to when you were 13. You know, maybe you would have chosen more wisely, what, or who knows, but, <laughs> uh, right? But, you know, if, if music is imprinting in our early teens, of course, our communication patterns, our assumptions about the world, the how much do we speak, at what volume, at what pace, on whose behalf are we comfortable talking, right? That all imprints. So I, I love that way of thinking about, right? That 15 year old is always with you. Always. So in your recent blog post, you talked about Oprah and the use of negotiation. And, you know, on a side note, I've always been obsessed sort of with the royal family. So when I went to school in London in college, Diana had just married Charles and I literally stood in line for like five or six hours to see all of their wedding gifts, which was <laughs> like unbelievable what people would give and countries would give. I mean, it was crazy stuff. And so, um, and I've watched The Crown, you know, and right, I, I, I followed all of this stuff. You know, I went, you know, it, I think I got to, uh, I went to a hotel really early in the morning to watch both of the weddings and, you know, eat crumpets and have tea. And so obviously I watched the Meghan Markle interview. Absolutely. And, you know, and so I'm curious, what did you think about that negotiation and the and that role in pop culture? Because, you know, afterwards everyone's like, Oprah's back, you know, what she's she's good at. And it's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> right. And so I mean when I, I've been blogging this month on how we should be so to step back, as you and I have discussed, right, there's a, there's a whole host of women who don't view negotiation as something that is part of their repertoire of, of one of the skills that we should just have automatically. And I think part of that is that when we think about great negotiators, at least in U.S. culture, we tend to look at great leaders. And so we've looked at presidents, we look at past secretaries of state. And so we talk about uh, Abraham Lincoln and his team of rivals. We talk about FDR. We, we look at you know, James Baker or Kissinger, or George Schultz or whatever. And, and those are our icons of like, aren't they clever and smart in the way that they negotiate? Where we have business models of, of great negotiators who also are primarily male. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with the blog is to highlight where there are plenty of female role models for different skills. And that even if you're not gonna grow up and be president or secretary of state, and by the way, there are now plenty of female secretaries of state who oh, are brilliant, yes. brilliant at their job. Yes, Madeline Albright comes to mind immediately. Right, right, right. And we, we've had a history now, you know, we have Madeline Albright and Hillary Clinton and Susan Rice and Condoleezza Rice. And right, there are all of a sudden a lot of female role models, but we didn't grow up with that. And so how do we make sure that the next generation is not only looking at what I would call the professionals, right? And again, yesterday's blog, I posted on Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel, and we now have female leaders as well, at least around the world, who are doing a terrific job. But again, maybe you don't see yourself as a political leader. You see yourself as, you know, whatever you're doing in life, where can you find negotiation skills that you have and, and how do we recognize that? So I was talking about Oprah in, you know, what makes her so talented is 
her authenticity, her openness, her willingness to not beat around the bush, to not pretend. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact of the matter is any of us can do that. We, we also don't have to grow up to be Oprah, although, you know, goals, right? Like that's a great thing, but you should go do that. And even if that's not your goal, how do you bring your authentic self? How do you realize that taking a risk in being more open and more vulnerable as Oprah has done, look as Meghan Markle did, as Diana did, as Chrissy Teigen did in talking about her miscarriage, that vulnerability, right. And, and how, again, I think we've been trained that you can't be vulnerable because that's soft and the, or that's weak. And the fact of the matter is that being open about your vulnerabilities is strength. If you, if you are willing to point out what you don't know or what's wrong or what happened, then what are people going to use against you anyway? What are you going to say? Wow, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. I know I don't know what I'm talking about. I never did fill in the blank. I'm here to learn. What I do bring to the table is this, this, and this skill, and those things I'm really good at. Right. So, well, I think it's the same thing with entrepreneurs, right? It's right. Like when they go into the room, particularly women, and I think one of the reasons that I've had this incredible relationship with so many women who've come into my office is they feel authentic in my room because I allow them to feel authentic and I'm authentic. I'm not political. I don't care. I will say anything. And I, some people would say, oh my God, you should, you know, never do that. I mean, I just, I emailed a candidate who's running for mayor and it's like, have you thought about this? And which is so you know, who am I to do that? And then they email me back, like, we are thinking about that. I love that, you know? So I, I think that that is one of these things that are sort of being unbundled these days in regards to be yourself, be authentic. You shouldn't be how a man behaved and, and vice versa. A man should be how a woman behaves. You should be yourself and you should feel free to say what you want to say and ask for what you want to say and not be dismissed for that. So yeah, I think you're right. I think Oprah has just done what all of us secretly wish we could do, which is ask those really hard questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Interesting. Right. Well, and I think because she's been open, she has the credibility to ask others to be open. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and and then you're like, oh, okay, well, if she asks me, I can let my guard down and be happy to have that conversation. And um, I think that more people should attempt to do that, not only in their day-to-day -day life, but certainly in their business life. Exactly. And I think they would find that they would have better communities with inside their business and probably better success. Right. I mean, and, and one could imagine even in, you know, in business that, okay, so, uh, you know, we delivered the widgets late, right? Like, let's not pretend that you didn't make a mistake on it. And, right, part of the delay was that your engineering department kept on changing what the specifications were here, here, and here. So neither of us want to be in a position where we are delivering your product late. How do we create a process so that our relationship improves and we can make sure that doesn't happen the next time. Completely, right? yeah. And let's not hide the ball. Right, and um, I think hopefully there will be less hiding of the ball in the next 10 years. I think we will be in a very, very different place. And more importantly, 
how is this reaction to the last you know 16 months of lockdown um, going to affect how we um, we talk in the world and how we interact with other human beings because that is there's a lot of mental health issues out there from there particularly for this next generation that has been sort of put on ice for some of their most important years and how that will change hopefully in in negotiating and being strong for women and feeling comfortable with saying what they want to say yeah well i hope it helps everybody right like life is too short say what you need to say get to the point and hopefully we have less tolerance for things that are dumb just who has patience for that yes and bullshit right um, anyway well thank you so much for being on this is a great conversation and um i'm looking forward to having more conversations with you in the future very much thanks joanne i appreciate right. it take care all right bye, -bye. If you want to learn more about what Andrea is doing, you can visit the website at marquette.edu slash women's leadership. Our next guest on Positively Gotham Gal will be Carla Lolly Music, the chef, cookbook author, and YouTube personality.